0: To ask a question, as I often do. When was the last time you saw somebody get fired up about something? You can just turn on the TV, but no. In your house, what do people get fired up about these days? Well, <laughs> it seems like almost anything, <laughs> frankly. Okay, some, well, actually really many people get fired up about politics. It's almost like politics itself is fired up. Other people get fired up about sports, their favorite team, or the team that they they love to hate. I've been to a Huskers men's basketball team, but I have been informed that I have not truly seen go Big Red until I go to a men's football game. And I see a lot of nodding, so that's confirmation for me. Um, Other people get fired up about their business or their hobbies. Others get fired up about crises in the world, like the coronavirus. Others get fired up about their kid misbehaving in church or outside of church. And others (laughs) get fired up and troll social media for spelling errors. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were passionate about something? I mean, really fired up about something. What was it about? What was the object of your passion? The point I believe this makes is that we all get passionate about something. We're designed that way. Well, here's the question then. Why is it when Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God... Why is it that when he gets passionate about something, the people of his church often try to apologize it away? As if gentle Jesus, meek and mild, would never interfere with our way of doing things, our priorities never interfere with what gets us fired up. And why is it that the people of God, why is it that we so often don't follow our Lord and Savior in his passion for his holiness? In his passion to be worshiped above all else, above all other passions? What is it that we really believe about Jesus of the Bible? Who is this Jesus? I think the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning will help us answer these questions and help us to better answer them for ourselves. What is your passion? What is your highest passion? What drives you? So, if you're there, would you please stand in honor of the Word of God this morning as we read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25? The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You have a seat. What we see here this morning is that Jesus, the Son of God, has a holy zeal for holiness. Now, we've read the whole passage, but but these verses at the end, 23 through 25, serve as a transitional statement between what has gone before and what comes after, and they provide a good summary and some good rationale for why Jesus is doing what he's doing up in verse 13. So we're going to start there. And what we need this morning is what's in here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, each week as we are gathered together by God's grace, I am going to give and remind you all of the gospel. That's why we are here. That's why that's the message that we need to believe. That's what the message that we need to continue in our belief. And that's why we're going to start here in verse 23 so we can get better understand why we need to hear this story of Jesus clearing out the temple. So here we go. First up, Jesus knows our need for renewal. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, on the face of this passage, this actually looks like a good thing, right? I mean, many believed in his name. That's why John wrote the book, right? Chapter 20, verse 31, it says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what seems to be going on here. But here's where we're given a good lesson, church. Not all believing in Jesus is true believing. I actually have asked a few people in town about Jesus or whether they're a Christian. Now, I'll caveat this and say this is not a surefire test, so don't take it that way. There are godly men and women who may answer the way that I'm going to tell you, but they usually don't. But do you know that the answer that I've got, whether someone was a Christian here in York, Yes, I go to such and such a church. So let's unpack that for a little bit. So what they just told me is that if you go to that church or such and such church, which may or may not preach this book, which may or may not believe what's in this book about Jesus, then that's how you know that they believe in Jesus. Or, what they're saying is that you can tell that I'm a Christian because I attend such and such a church on Sundays and show up to the things that they do. That's kind of what's going on here in verse 23. Many believed in his name when, when they saw the signs that he was doing. They knew of his name. But did they know who he was? Who he is? And who he always will be? Now, do you know how we can tell that this might not be the kind of belief that would be genuine? That the what we would call salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? Let's look at look at who is the ultimate skeptic in this passage, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. See, when it says entrust himself, it's the same word that was used when it said that many believed in his name. So what this is saying is that you might think or say that you believe in Jesus, but be careful. Jesus might not believe in you. He's not buying it. He's not buying it if you don't embrace him. If you try, if you say you believe just because of the the signs that he's doing because here's what would have happened if Jesus had bought it if he did believe that they were making a, a true confession of faith he would have let these people try to make him king right then and there he would have let these people make him a superstar and get all the press and accolades which we find out later in the book that's what they were really that's what they really wanted they wanted a superstar but he doesn't why why does he not believe them why does he not entrust himself to them so here quick pause this is just a tip you hear outside in our house You don't have to do this. But in our house, when we hear sirens, we take a moment to pray. Because somebody's in trouble, and somebody's taking time out of their Sunday to go help. So let's pray. Father, we pray for those who are serving and um, going to an emergency today. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and help and be able to help. And we pray for those who are in trouble, whether they've done something wrong or something wrong has happened to them. And we pray that they would know you and that know you are near. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Back to the text, verse 24. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So let's put it this way. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because their nature and our nature didn't and really of ourselves doesn't really want to trust Jesus as he ought to be trusted. They wanted a king who could do magical things for them. They wanted a God who could affirm their lifestyle and their self-chosen identity. Not a savior who would rescue them from their spiritual death. Not a Lord who would, to whom they would submit. Not a God who rules over all and transforms people from haters of God into beloved children who love him. God doesn't need anyone to bear witness about man. Do you know how we know this? because he sent Jesus to the earth. If everything were fine, he wouldn't need to send his son. He didn't send Jesus to find out what was really going on with humans or discover that he had missed for thousands of years how amazing we are. No, he needed no one to bear witness about man because if in Genesis 4 verse 10 God told Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. If he hears the voice of Of the blood of one man made in the image of God, crying out injustice. How much more can he hear the cry of the blood of billions of babies, children, men and women throughout centuries that have been made in the image of God that that their blood has been shed on this earth? And that's just blood. That's not the evil deeds that do not kill bodies but kill souls. That's not even the daily wicked thoughts for billions of people all over the globe right at this moment who opposed God. He needed no one to bear witness about man. Charles Haddon Spurgeon rightly said, you cannot slander human nature. It is worse than words can paint it. But, and that's one of the best words in the Bible, But it is because he did not need anyone to bear witness about man, because he knew all people, he himself knew what was in man, that, as we read in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus knows our need for renewal. And he knows it as God and he knows it as man who as the book of Hebrews 4 verse 15 says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows our need for renewal and he has come to bring it about. So will we believe thinking that we'll somehow pass the Christian s- smell test? Or will we see our need to come to Him? But make no mistake, in coming to Him, it's not just a, it's not easy, what's called easy believism. It's not a, I signed my name on the card and we're done. No, this is a full scale renewal. It involves holy reformation that a loving Jesus is going to bring about. And that's why we started this part of the text, because now we go to verse 13 and understand what's going on here. Jesus' love, secondly, for his father calls for reformation. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus' love for his Father calls for reformation. Now, it mentioned it in verse 23, but it seems more appropriate here. It mentions the Passover, verse 13. This is a good place for us to talk about this. So Jesus knows our need for renewal. He came and lived among us. What he was to do was to make the Father known. Okay, We saw that in chapter 1, verse 18. And in one of the titles given to him by John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 29, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John saying this was showing that the ultimate fulfillment of the purpose of Passover, which in Exodus the Hebrews painted blood on their door frames, so that when God came to kill the unbelieving firstborn of the nation of Egypt who had held his people in slavery, he would pass over the Israelites because of the blood the lamb. So all this to say, this story and several others in the book of John are around Passover because Jesus is that spotless lamb. And the spotless lamb makes other things spotless. Because when Jesus shows up, Jerusalem at the Passover, there is a major problem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Okay, let's work to understand this. People were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Why? <laughs> we don't have a context for that. Like maybe like beef market or, or some livestock show, but not in a temple. What what's going on here? So for Passover At this time in history, Jews would come from all over the world to worship God in Jerusalem. Because that's where God's temple was. And many, traveling any significant distance, would not be able to safely bring the sacrifices necessary to worship. So, people would bring money. Both for the temple tax for men over the age of 19, and to purchase animals for sacrificing. So then, once they got to Jerusalem, they could purchase animals to make sacrifices. Hence, we have people selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Or your translation may say turtle doves. And for the temple tax, they had to convert the currency they had brought to coinage acceptable for the temple treasury. Hence, money changers would be necessary. Now, There's nothing in the Mosaic Law that forbids any of this. People selling animals for sacrifices, the temple tax. Why is this a problem then? It wasn't the fact that there were people selling, and there wasn't the fact that there were money changers converting in foreign currency. You know what the problem was it was worship. Where were the animals sold? Where were the money changers set up? That's right. In the temple. The place where the where the holy worship of the most holy God was to take place. Where his name was to be revered. And it was the place where anyone could come to worship the Lord. And what you may not see in this text is that this market, that's what it was. It was not just set up in the all over the temple. Do you know where it was set up? The word used for temple here oftentimes refers to the temple as a whole, but it more specifically talks of a place called the Court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court and the only place non-Jews could go to worship the God of Israel. So let me ask you this. If you... A non Jew, and we all, I think, are. Is it easy for you to think on God's word, to quietly pray to Him, to focus on seeking His face? Is it easy for you to do those things when all around you is the mooing of cattle, the bleating of sheep, the constant cooing and fluttering of pigeons, not to mention people haggling over money conversions and the clinking of coins? What do you think that this communicated to the unbeliever who wanted to know what the God of Israel was like? A couple things. It said that he didn't care about their worship. And it said that they were not welcome to worship God Almighty. It also communicated that the God of Israel wanted you to pay up before you came to worship him. said that the God of Israel was more interested in business transactions than a broken and contrite heart and a heeding of the command, Be still and know that I'm God. So if you were God, it's kind of a dangerous question to ask, but if you were God and there were people who were keeping people from worshiping you, if there were people who set up a storefront right at the front entryway of your house so that the first thing everyone saw when they came in was money and goods being moved around that you weren't really being taken seriously by the people who were supposed to maintain your house but that they loved money instead of you how would you respond well who is Jesus Jesus is the son of God how does he respond He goes into the temple. He sees these things. How does he respond? He responds with love. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Does that sound loving to you? You know, last week we studied right before this one of how Jesus, the loving God, he brought joy to a wedding by turning water into wine. Helped them avoid shame. A poor couple avoid shame. And he did it to show that he was God and he was a God of loving joy and he wants us to share in that joy Jesus wants joy in our lives. Jesus wants us to have abundant joy as a church. That by believing, as he said, we may have life in his name. Life, not death. Because he's loving. But we have so often, as the church, universal, been tempted to soften the love of God. Trying to portray him as, because we know 1 John, because God is love, we portray him as someone who doesn't get angry, who always accepts, who never talks about hell, at least not the real place with real eternal conscious punishment, much less actually sending people there. We also get comfort, uncomfortable when he presents plainly that his son had to die on the cross to take our place. The theological language being penal, penal substitutionary atonement. A lot of people don't like that. That God actually judges sin by paying his blood for it instead of ours. And we try to separate the reality that God is love from the reality that God is holy, from the reality that God is just, and the reality that God is zealous for his name. We are tempted to believe that he's the kind of God who's more like the lazy dad, who will let us do what we want, when we want, without curfew. Frankly, that sounds more like Jesus is my homeboy than Jesus making a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. But God is one. The Jews start their worship with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. It means he's one God, but he's also united in all of his attributes. None of them are opposed to one another. They're all together. Love, justice, joy, wrath, holiness, peace, all together. This is loving if we will have eyes to see it. He loves the Jews enough to disrupt and judge their foolish practices of trade in the temple that keeps them and others from actually worshiping him. He loves the Gentiles enough to know that they are welcome to the temple and that they need space to worship. Wouldn't he be an unloving God if he let them and let us get away with sin that keeps us from him? Look at this. Notice most of all the object of his love. His holy love, his zeal, for is for who? His Father. This is a claim that Jesus is going to make again and again and again, and it's going to increasingly get him into trouble, because he's right, and people don't like it. God is his Father, and he is God because of it. Take these things away, he told the people, as they were likely overcharging for the pigeons. If you remember anything about pigeons, they were sold to be sacrifices for the poor people. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus is above all without contest for his father. He will choose his Father every time over all of us. And that's the best thing for us. Everything he does is for the glory of and the honor of his Father. And that means, by his grace, all unacceptable forms of worship, preventing people from worshiping his Father, they got to go. They've got to go. So we need to ask ourselves, church, is our love for God calling for reformation? I love that this church, one of the things that we value is being a family. The body of Christ is a family, praise God, of adopted sons and daughters of God. But we have to ask do we often act in a way that communicates that others are not invited to be part of that family? like actively inviting? Do we communicate something false about the Lord God who desires that every nation, tribe, and people would come to know him? Do we set the priorities of this church before the honor and worship of God, our Father through Jesus Christ? Do we need to be cleansed? Jesus' love for his father calls for reformation. But the story is not merely about cleaning house. It's about something totally new. It's about resurrection. Jesus replaces stone with resurrection. Look at this in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. (laughs) This is almost funny. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They said to the God to whom the temple pointed. The Lord who stood right in front of them who makes God the Father perfectly known, and they want credentials. Where's your permit for shutting down the market, Jesus? But, we do have to point out that they don't arrest him. They will later. But they don't arrest him. Why? Because what he's just done is assert a messianic type authority by cleaning out the temple. It's almost as if they knew it was not okay, but they let it happen anyway. It's a statement of authority. So they respond, show us a sign to prove that you have the authority to do this. They missed the part where he said, my father's house. And what's amazing here is that Jesus doesn't flip it around on them. He doesn't just go for doesn't just go for the jugular of, what authority do you have to desecrate the temple? He doesn't do that. <laughs> he gives them the sign. Not only the sign, but he gives them the challenge and a prophecy with the sign. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now this... So many times we read this statement like an if-then statement. If you destroy this temple, then in three days I will raise it up. And we're clued in by John that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So, we know, being on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, that this came true. That the if-then came true. Because they destroyed that temple, Jesus' body, in three days he did raise it up. But you know what? The if is not in this text. This is actually a command. Destroy this temple. I remember talking to a former missionary to, the, to Muslims in the Middle East. And he told me that oftentimes, not necessarily exclusive to Muslims, but that Muslims believe that Jesus had his life taken from him that he didn't willingly give it up. Now that missionary didn't use this verse, but he did point to John 10, verse 17, 18, which says, I, this is Jesus talking, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What does this mean? destroy this temple. It means that Jesus is not merely a victim, even though what was done to him was criminal. It means that he is the son of God, just like he says he is and that the wicked actions of people who hate Jesus are not outside of his plan. Be reminded of that when bad things happen in your life and you don't know why they are not outside of God's plan. Jesus not only gives the command, destroy this temple, he gives the promise, an accompanying sign. In three days, I will raise it up. <laughs> and this is where the deer in the headlights look comes over. Everybody who hears Jesus at this moment, what? So the Jews, regathering themselves, then said, It's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple, and you. We'll raise it up in three days. Nobody gets it until later. There they are in the temple of the old covenant. And Jesus lets them know that there is, and Jesus right there lets them know that there is a temple of the new covenant. Again, John clues us in, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. There's also something great going on in the Greek that our translations don't usually show. In verses 13 through 17, there's a word that's used for temple. And in verses 18 through 22, there's a different word used for temple. The word used here in verses 18 through 22 refers most often refers to a specific place in the temple. The place where the presence of God actually was. The Holy of Holies. Destroy this temple. Destroy this Holy of Holies, that is, my body, which is, as Colossians 2 verse 9 said, he, what was it? I'm trying to remember it. Um, sorry, I lost it. He is the image of the invisible God. Let me get there, sorry. This is just too good to pass up, and I didn't have it in my notes, so I'm going off script. Be careful. All right. Ephesians 2, verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's the temple. Three days, I will raise it up. What has Jesus just said? He has just said that stone is to be replaced with resurrection. He has just given us the key to understand a whole bunch of Scripture. Matthew twelve, verse six: I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. When he was crucified, what happened to the curtain that was that kept the holy place from the holy of holies in the in the stone temple? Matthew 27, verse 51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. He told the Samaritan woman in John four twenty-one and 23, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Acts 17, verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And again, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And even at the end of the book, Revelation 21, verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And we can go on and on. But we no longer look to a temple of wood and stone. We look to Jesus, who is is the Lord exalted after his resurrection, completing the sign that he promised. And that's how important the resurrection is. If the resurrection had not happened, we would be as clueless as these guys. But then it goes on to say, But when therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this. And they believed. Now look closely. What did they believe? What did they believe? They believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. The Word of God that was penned by the prophets is the same Word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. They are one. And that's why we believe this book to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and the inerrant word of God because whether it is ta- it was God talking before Jesus was sent or when Jesus was here, it's the same God who speaks a single message. And it is a message of resurrection. It's a message of hope. It is a message of eternal glory. It is a message of coming out of the ashes of a sin-crushed world, bringing dead sinners to life in God, bringing reformation to the worship of God out of love for the Father, and changing the corruption of stone for the resurrection and revelation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, as the Word of God says, we may have life in His name. He, Jesus the Son, has a holy zeal for holiness. So let's revisit the question. Do we? Do we have a holy zeal for holiness? Are we passionate for the glory of God to be known and revealed in our lives? Are we fired up for the things God is fired up about? Or do we settle for the lesser life? It is a lesser life. Don't let anybody fool you. It's a lesser life when we save our zeal, our passions for those things which are not, never have been, nor ever will be God. We are to enjoy the good gifts God has given us for the glory of God. Do we love the holiness of God? And do we love that He has determined to make us holy? Do you remember and know that we, Jesus's church, who are given His Spirit, those of us who believe in His name, we're called His body, and we're told in First Corinthians chapter three, verses sixteen through seventeen, "Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." And in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15 through 7, verse 1, What accord has Christ with Belial? It's an ancient Greek or pagan god. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst, and be separate from them, the Lord says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will come to you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I'm going to drive this home real specifically. Me too. Dads, husbands. Where is your first love? If I were to quiz your life. If I were to quiz your wife, if I were to quiz your kids about what or who they think you most value. If they were completely honest with me, what do you think they would say? this question to myself. And don't think just because I have the word pastor in front of my name that I'm not often concerned about the answer that I would get or that I would hear. If the answer is anything less than the glory of God and the love of Jesus Christ, we need to confess and repent that we have let our houses, our lives, Become marketplaces for the stink of livestock and the ching of money that get in the way of our and our families worship of God. And this question is for everyone: for you kids, for you teenagers, for you adults, whether single, married, divorced, with kids, without kids. you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that by believing you have life in his name have you set up things in your life that get in, in the way of you knowing and worshipping God the way he ought to be worshipped and in setting up those things you're also communicating to the world that God is not really who he says he is in this book who should be worshipped above all others. But Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had had spoken. Let's look to Jesus fulfilled the scripture. Zeal for your house consumes me. Love for his father calls for reformation. He knows our need for renewal and he has come to give us renewal and resurrection. Son of God has a holy zeal for holiness. May we who are sons and daughters of God bought by his blood have the same Let's pray. Father, we can't do this unless you, through your Holy Spirit, work it in us. But Lord, I do pray that we would desire it like you had desired holiness for your house. Lord God, please. You know our frame, you know our weaknesses, you know our failures, and yet you came anyway. And you didn't give us a, a more list of to-dos. You gave us a command to believe in the name of the, the Son of God, to trust him. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that every word that you spoke is true. We thank you that every word that we have received in your book is true. Lord, we only pray, and we pray, Lord, that we would be given your grace by your Holy Spirit to receive it and be changed. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for your son, most of all. We pray in his name.